Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Etche, an artist and art consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I interview artists, cultural producers, designers, and funders about how art in public space happens and how to create more equitable and inclusive projects in public space. If you want to learn more about my art consulting services or artwork, check out distillcreative.com or find me on Instagram at distillcreative. I hope you enjoy this episode. Can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Marela Zacarias, and I am both a painter and a sculptor, and I work both in really large site-specific installations, but I also work in small, you know, small, more intimate works. And can you describe what your artwork looks like? My artwork looks, well, the, the sculptures, the painted sculptures look a lot like, kind of like fabric that is moving on the wall, or, you know, it can be hanging from the ceiling or freestanding, but there's like a movement in it that looks like, like fabric. And then I paint over it with geometric abstraction. Although in the last project that I just did, I was working with representations of healing, like medicinal plants and flowers. So my work is kind of changing a little bit at the moment, but it's all hand painted after I make a sculpture. And one of the things that people mention a lot is that it looks like it's soft or that it is fabric, but in reality is like a hard sculpture made out of plaster and, and window screen, like wire mesh and wood that is like sanded and built for a long period of time and then painted. So there's kind of like, you know, it fools the eye a little bit and people want to touch it. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it's hard, but it's also light because it's hollow. So And it's one of your works behind you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm working on that one right now. And there's another one on the table over there. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I could yeah, show it to you. Like, yeah, or no, later. We can, we can, it's up to you. I feel bad for people listening because then they can't see. But right. if you're watching on video, you can, sure. you can get a little peek. What's your earliest memory of creating something? I mean, drawing and painting was like kind of like the one natural thing that I liked since I was very little. And my mom really encouraged it from the beginning. And so I would do portraits of people at her job. Like she would bring me to her job and I would do portraits. And then they would be like, oh, I love it. Can I have it? And I was like, yes, but it's $5. You know, like <laughs> I had that, that mindset weirdly since I was a child. And I think now that I'm thinking back at like what I do and what I did as a child, in like preschool we made like masks out of plaster Mm. like you know like the kind of what they used to do casts like the paper mache it wasn't paper mache it was like the kind of plaster that you wrap that come in in like pieces like when you break an arm they wrap your arm with it and then it hardens oh yeah yeah I feel like I remember doing that too. It's like a like a gauze almost. Yeah, like a gauze. Yeah. And so we made these masks and then we painted them and then we put like a glue on top of it. And I liked it so much that then I reproduced it at home by myself. Like I wanted to make them and then painted them. And if you think about it, it's still what I'm doing now. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm making these forms out of uh, plaster, then painting them and kind of using the same materials. And then there was another really big piece that I did. I was taking um, after school class, like art classes. Again, this is all when I was like five, six. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I created this huge, we had to draw ourselves on a piece, on a large piece of paper and then paint inside. But I didn't quite like what it looked like when I finished. And so I covered the whole thing with crayon, which took me weeks. <laughs> and then I painted it with uh, black ink. <laughs> and I did a huge drawing. So it was like a big mural, you know, I feel like. So here's like the large size, the intensive labor, which all my work has. And then the mask, you know, it's it's kind of like my instincts were showing up and at that age and it's still kind of my nature, you know. Yeah, that's crazy. That's that's so cool that you've like remembered that and that you can see those threads to now. Mm -hmm. How did you start making artwork in public space? Well, I left Mexico City when I was 17 to go study um, at Kenyan College in Ohio. Mm. And at that time, I was already like, it was, you know, I was always doing art after school and like doing these important like projects. And, but I also became very active in social movement. It was 94, 90 to 96 when the Zapatista movement started in the mm -hmm. south of Mexico. And so as a high school student, I got very involved and cared, you know, a lot about, you know, the student movement and about, the Zapatistas, indigenous rights. And so when I went to Kenya, I was the only Mexican in the whole school. And all my friends who stayed in Mexico City, like there was a student strike and they were not in school for like two years. And so I felt like the need to kind of represent a lot of Mexico because I was the only Mexican. So I was like bringing speakers to the school and I studied, my major became social movements through art and religion. It was a synoptic major, so I put it all together. Started doing research on the mural movement, on the Mexican muralist movement, and on art as a tool for social change. And obviously, through that, it became obvious to me that the best way of doing both was to become a muralist or paint murals. So my thesis was, you know, to kind of like design a mural for like uh, one of the big parks in Condesa in Mexico City, and like. I did this interactive thing on a website. So I painted my first mural my junior year of college. I was invited to this university in Connecticut to paint it. And, and then as soon as I graduated, that mural is still there because it's an art school. And then when I went to, I moved to Washington, D.C., I introduced myself as a muralist. I was like 21 and they're like, what's your name? Marela Zacarias. And what do you do? I'm a muralist. And yeah, like someone was like, oh, you know, the Latin American Youth Center is looking for a muralist to teach this class to a group of Salvadoran teenagers during the summer and paint a mural that is like 100 feet by 25 feet. Can you do it? And I'm like, of course, you know. And so that was like really my first public mural that was huge and took me all summer with like 100 volunteers. And it was an amazing experience. So that, that was the first one. And from that one, you know, once you do one, then people know that you're there. And then I started getting more, more murals like that. And I painted murals for 10 years, public murals, before I moved to New York and started creating sculptures. Wow. Did you make the shift to sculpture doing, during grad school? I was like at the end of my time in Connecticut, I was already trying to bring the mural out into the three-dimensional space like I did an installation with like paper mache like a piece of like me hanging because I was working I was like creating work about the rights of undocumented workers 
who work in the meatpacking industry and the raids and it was very political and so i created this installation with you know with a with a meat hanging and then the mural in the back and i started doing some like installations with plexiglass creating shadows on the wall so i was already interested in bringing the mural out into the three-dimensional space when i got into grad school but once i was in grad school that's when i started experimenting with materials and, and developed the technique that I have now. That's when it began, you know. I didn't know I was a sculptor, you know, really, until then. How did your work become more abstract? Well, I think that the time when I went to grad school and, you know, I was like very polite. I was an activist in Connecticut. I was working for immigrant rights against the war, you know, against the... I mean, I was just doing a lot, a lot of groundwork you know and um i got to grad school with these ideas with a mural you know the mural as a muralist and i got a lot of like kind of it was a different time like right now that would be like yay you know welcome but at that time people were like that's passe like murals are from another time you know political art can be on your face like it needs to be and i think and i think i mean Part of it was like, I, when I started painting murals, my idea was like Diego Rivera and Orozco, who were like doing really political work at a time when it was well received, you know, in the, in the 30s to the 50s. And it was kind of avant-garde and spread all over the world. But at the time that I was painting murals in 2000, that wasn't kind of the reception of them. There were more like community projects for areas of, you know, that needed art or that, that had like some you know, financial problems and, mm -hmm. and lots of gang activity and, you know, and so, and, and the, they were sponsored mostly by nonprofit organizations that, that like had a lot to say about the design. So I would like make a design based on what they wanted or with kids or with students. And then there would be a committee that is not necessarily made out of artists or people in the, in the art world. It was, it was more like administrative or, and they had a lot of like opinions. So like the design would be something that wasn't just my voice or my ideas. It was like, you know, I was good at being a tool. Like, like I would put together these, these design with all these elements with all these people. And then he just put it on the wall with the community. And I love that. I love working with the community, with teams and in these neighborhoods, like being there for a month painting and meeting everybody. Like that was something that I always fulfilled me, but it wasn't like, my voice expressing and i think that then i got to grad school and i was confronted with a lot of incredible artists incredible professors and also the art world in new york and i had not been exposed to that because i was you know working with a community of indigenous people in guatemala or or kids in hartford connecticut or and so i think that part of it was that like i had these kind of critics now that were looking at the work in the context of the time and then but also i realized that abstraction gave me a way of really telling the stories that were deeply important to me in a way that could be like taken in by all everyone in different ways so the story was, has always been there in my work like i i, I do paint abstraction but there's always a story behind it, either through the colors or the plays or um, and the inspiration. So I am telling a story that means a lot to me, but the voice is different because 
is not just these symbols that everybody knows and you see it and you're like, oh, this is the idea. This is what she wants to say. Mm-hmm. I take it or not, you know, like it, it became, it gave it more layers. And I also realized that like, unlike Diego Rivera and Orozco and Cicadas, like my voice and the work that I create is, is not so much about criticizing uh, the times or the politics anymore. It's about regeneration. So my work has this energy of growth and life and color. And and that's my voice. Like, that's what I want to bring into the world. You know, I admire these very political murals and, and, and I have very political ideas. But what I want to bring into the world is like, where are we going next? You know, I, I, we have to regenerate. We have to create things that inspire people to move forward. And and I like bringing these energy into spaces. And, and so it's not, you know, aggressive and, and, and cynical and kind of on your face political. It's more like the other force, you know, like what, do, what can grow from this? And, and so that's where I discovered that that's, that's how I want to create, you know, that's my voice. That's not a committee of people deciding what I'm going to say. That's my energy. That's my love. That's my, you know, commitment. And, and the work takes so much time to be built and to be painted and to be researched. And so I think that that's, that's what the work has. And it has a life of its own because there's so many hours of care in it. And that care goes to the people that will have it, that will live around it mm-hmm. in a more subtle way. Yeah, I think that's what drew me to your work initially is there's clearly so much care and time spent making it. And then the more you look into it or learn about it, there's so many literal layers, obviously. but then like the, it, you have such a research-based process, it seems like. So can you talk through that, how, how you work on a piece? Like how much time do you spend researching? How much time do you spend making? Or like what that flow might look like if it's different every time or... Yeah, I mean, like, usually, you know, I will get, I'm contacted by someone, you know, saying there's this open, you know, there's this opportunity, can you apply for it? Or we would like you to submit a proposal and this is the space. So the first thing I do is always, I try to do a site visit, you know, and then start researching just everything about the history, about the people, the nature. And then there will be something that, like, or a couple of things that like I connect with, you know, and that I'm like, wow, because these projects to me, it's not just like what I'm going to bring to it, but like, what can I learn from them? They're like always, you know, like opportunities to learn about somewhere, history, like, and so I, I look for that, like what is a line of research that I will be most interested in that connects with me in a deep level and that I will, you know, like it will be a discovery that I will have forever. You know, I'm going to tell you about this, the, the last project that I just installed in on January 19th in New York. And um, for example, that was NYU Langone. Oh, awesome. They're opening a new women's health center uh, on the first floor of the city court building on East 53rd and Lexington Avenue. Oh my gosh. That's, that's where I go for, I've, I've been there a lot lately. Lango, Lango. Yeah, well, this is a new women's health center. Cool. It hasn't opened yet. And so when they came up to me, I decided to make like, so once they tell me, I like start thinking about things again, like as I said, and 
you know, I've learned because I am working with textiles a lot. And and the textile thing wasn't something that, like, I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't create something to look like textiles. It just kind of emerged from from intuitively working with the materials. You know, I wasn't like, oh, I have to make textiles. But because they showed up, then that leads me to, like, learn more about them. So I... I'm very interested in the history of the shawl, which became El Reboso in Mexico, mm-hmm. and how it came out of Kashmir in, I think, the 14th century, 15th century. And then it went to Europe as a, like, really, you know, it was, it was an expensive piece of clothing with a lot of detail. And so it was for the upper class, but eventually it just was ad- adopted as the traditional attires of the working, you know, people in Germany and Spain. And then with the colonization, it came to Mexico and all the indigenous, the indigenous woman kind of ad, like adopted it and transformed it into a reboso, which is now something that almost every Mexican woman owns, regardless of class and where they live. And, and throughout the history of the shawl and reboso, like it's always been decorated with the natural world. It, it always had like plants or flowers or animals. And so for these work at the Langone Women's Health Center, I decided to do research on healing like medicinal plants and flowers and, and, and put these plants and flowers onto the shawl and dedicated like with energy of like healing for the women who are going to go to the center. And so I did a lot of research and there's every plant and flower is, is healing in one way or another, you know? So I started like kind of concentrating more on, like I had all these research and then I started having consultations with women healers, both here in Mexico and in New York and asking them like, what are the plants and flowers that you work with? You know, you were treating women. What are some plants and flowers that are best for women and in which ways? And so I started learning a lot about like plants that I didn't even know that were healing, that were really good for women. And, and there's like ceremonies with a rose. And then there's the, you know, and, and why, you know, something as simple as chamomile is like really great because it like calms you down. And, and so, you know, I kind of narrowed a little bit of the plants and flowers that I had into that. And then also based on my own experience with them. And so, you know, then I started to paint it and it's been like, it was like a breakthrough in all kinds of ways because I started painting very organically, like not just the geometric, you know, which I think really helped me. um, The geometric really helped me understand color. Hmm because I had this grid and I started really playing with color for years, especially in the really large installation at the Seattle airport, which was 250 feet of sculpture on all sides. Like, and then, but now like in this piece, it was like a breakthrough where I started just painting freehand organically onto these surfaces and, and really taking in the power of each plant and flower that I was putting in and with an intention of, sending that kind of healing to the women that are going to be there. And yeah, I just finished it. It was insane. I like, you know, in 14 days, my last trip, like I went home three nights. I was painting straight, you know, it's like very intense when I'm working on this. 
And that was a six month project of making it. So it was a year when they asked me developing the proposal, presenting the proposal, and then developing the project, like making it, which also takes a long time. It was six months of six months of production. And the pieces I shot is like 26 feet high by wow. 15 feet wide on a wall that is 31 feet by 19 feet. And you can see it from the street. It's all glass windows. So if you are ever there, please. Yeah, I have to go check it out. Yeah, it's installed. I actually, you know, they're not letting me post pictures until they actually open the the center, which will be next week. But I know these will be aired after that. So we talk about it. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go check it out. That's that's so awesome. I've actually just reached out to one of like the person who curates NYU Langone their art program because I'm so curious how they run it and I want to I want to oh. interview them so hopefully she answers me <laughs> but tell her that I told you this after it opens because otherwise she's gonna be like why are you telling yeah me? no this this is this is after yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay it's okay <laughs> thank you that that was really helpful to hear how you how you work through that process um yeah I mean, each place is different you know like Sometimes it's about the land or the people, but but it always has to have something that touches me deeply so that, because I'm going to spend so much time, so much money, and I usually like, you know, work more than I'm asked for. I make projects that are bigger than I expect because I always want to give the best and, and I get inspired and carry on, and I get carried on. So I need to make sure that that what the project is about, regardless of who is it for, Mm-hmm. that the project touches me deeply because I'm going to give so much of myself to it, you know, so much life for so many hours, so much time away from my son. So it needs to, it needs to, um, to be worth it, you know, on a deep level for me to do that. Before you were getting inquiries, how did you kind of focus your projects? Uh, well, to tell the truth, so I was painting murals in Connecticut before I moved to grad school. So I was already doing these big pieces. And then I got to grad school and these material kind of came about very quickly. Hmm. And so I had one commission for, for a mural at Connecticut, uh, UConn, University of Connecticut. Hmm. And on that one, I actually added some of these, hmm. some of these elements to that. And then like, I got really lucky because it was new. And I was dealing with abstraction and all these things like, you know, we had like open studios at Hunter and the curators from, I think it was no longer empty. Like, like the first summer I was in grad school, they asked me to do a 45 feet long wall wow. with a work. And so I did my first large one the summer of my first year of grad school. And from there I met the curators of the Museo del Barrio. So that next summer, I was in the S Files Biennial with a, also with a really large piece. And then, yeah, like, so it, it just kind of like started. But my thesis at Hunter, which is like not for a space and not a commission, I made it about kind of revisiting Mexico during the drug wars and visiting like my father's town in the north, you know, in 2010 and just kind of seeing how things had changed because of the violence. And, and so it was like revisiting my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so all the works 
had this kind of playfulness that is like an empty playground, you know, and, and my works were kind of taking over like the seesaw and a tricycle or the swings. And it was like filling the absence with these hollow forms. And, you know, so, so I feel like you can find the theme either through the site specificity, but I can also do it through channeling something I want to work on and then letting the work show it, you know, in a more instinctive way. So yeah, and, and a lot of times now what happens is that I do a huge project that's site specific and then, and it's ginormous and gigantic. And there's so many different things that emerge in each project that then like I go quiet, you know, I have a big team and I do these things and then, and then I go quiet and I go to my studio and I work on some of the things alone in the smaller works and, and start really like putting together like some of the colors or, and they come out more like, I call them like a little haiku, you know, like after doing 250 feet of painting and sculpture, like then what comes out in one small piece is like a little fragment, but that little fragment carries the experience of the two years that I spent on the big project or the six months. And it helps me like, it leads me to the next step, you know? So it's like a way of, for me to like really take it in and expand on it or enjoy it too, you know? It's not like this big deadline or this, you know, it's, it's more like me enjoying it by myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can kind of digest it mm -hmm. before you go to like another large project, which is- Yeah, and sometimes mm -hmm. like it's, it's the opposite, you know, like when I do- or I start with a small piece because I have these large projects. Like with the with these plants and flowers um, project, I started a small piece for one of my mentors, Nary Ward. Mm -hmm. And because I knew it was for him, you know, I was like, oh, I'm gonna experiment with this like idea of the organic and the geometric finding each other. So it's like a tiny piece that I've been working on for like six months. But I got a lot of the palette and a lot of the things in these little piece that then expanded into this huge one, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's more of a personal, personal like work mm -hmm. in the small one. Can you talk a little bit about how motherhood has influenced your career? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like being an artist is dealing a lot with the same energies that you have as a mother. Like at least my work requires a lot of attention and nurturing and love, you know, like, but once you have, you know, a son or a baby, then, then that, that competes, like the work needs, like, I'm always conscious of my time. Like when I'm painting anything, cause I split my time between Mexico and New York. So I go to New York and I work really intensively for two weeks. And then I come back here for like three weeks or maybe four. And then I go back to New York. And so like every minute counts, you know, I'm very aware that like every minute that I'm painting or that I'm doing it, I'm not with Mateo. And so it gives everything, like I don't waste time. Like I work nonstop all night, you know, because I know that if I don't finish, then I have to come back earlier and not be with my son. And I always struggle with that, you know, with, with the guilt, but also I know that I'm supposed to be doing this work and I know that 
you know, that's, that's just my call. And, and, and so like how to explain, like, I think he understands it, but, but I also decided not to have another kid because I'm like, I'm splitting my time between my son and my art. And like to have another kid would be not fair for my son. And when I'm with him, I'm very present. I'm like full-time mom. I take him to school. I play with him. You know, we have a really wonderful relationship, but I'm just like very aware and like, I guess it makes me be very present both with my artwork and with him. Like, I don't waste my time with either one because I know how precious it is and 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 what's at stake, you know. Mm-hmm. Is he in school? Does he go to school in Mexico or does he go back? Yeah, right now he's in, he's in, um, I mean, this is a new thing. And it started with the pandemic being in Mexico because I came here for two weeks to finish work for a project. And we got stuck here for four months. And, you know, in Cuernavaca, we stay in a little house, but like my mom and my aunt are there and another one and my brother and his wife and their baby. And so we had a community of family and, and friends and it's warm and there's plants and there's a pool. You know what I mean? So we, we felt really safe and taken care of and we had this community taking care of them. And, and I think that's what, when we decided to be there. Before, when we were in Seattle, we were like back and forth. Eventually, I got an apartment in Seattle so that they could come and be there. Like Mattel could be there while I was working. Like always hustle, you know, always. But yes, now Mateo is in school in Cuernavaca. He's in kindergarten. He's going to go into first grade next year. He's completely fluent in Spanish, which is really important to me. And um, yeah, and and. You know, he loves being there. And when I leave, I don't feel as bad because he is in this community, not only in school, but then after school, he's either with his grandmothers or playing with his cousin or, you know, um, I know that he's taken care of when I can't be there with other motherly figures. And my mom, my mom, my mom is an identical twin sister. So my mom's are there. (laughs) They raised me, you know, with unconditional motherly love and i know that they give that to him and so i'm like who else you know could give that to him if i'm not there better than my moms who gave that to me you know yeah that's so awesome both to have family and then the cultural aspects of it because like i'm mexican and but I, i grew up in arizona and i'm about third generation fourth generation from mexico like depending on what side and so i that's something i wish I wish I had family to go back to in Mexico, basically, and, and I don't. And, and now that all my great grandparents have passed, I don't have that there. That was like the last, like the last generation that only spoke Spanish or that, I mean, they passed down a lot of cultural things, of course, but it's just, it's just not the same. And I like, now that I'm going to have a kid, it's like, how do I continue to culturally be Mexican? in like this Chicana, it's just like, it's a, it's a totally different thing for me. And we live in Brooklyn and my husband's Jewish. And so it's like, how do you create this new cultural environment for them without having extended family around all the time? Yeah. Well, you can always visit us, but <laughs> you. Like, go there for a summer or something. Oh my gosh. You know? Yeah. Cause yeah. Like Mateo is eating the food and, and just that cultural part. Like my husband is from Montana, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> And he doesn't really speak Spanish. And so I knew that I'm very lucky that Mateo's going to have that because otherwise he would have been another kid that is like, oh, yeah, I'm Mexican, but I understand everything, but I don't speak it, you know, or right. something like that. Yeah. Which I, 
And um, yeah, so for me, that was like, oh, okay, I did one thing right. You know, like <laughs> one thing is like, I gave him language and culture and that being bi-culture, bicultural, mm-hmm. you know, feeling comfortable in both. Mm-hmm. Which is huge. And I think to your point about like him seeing you do what you do is so important too. It's like, yeah, I mean, I hope Don't so. feel like, guilty. <laughs> you know, we all have something. We're all going to have to deal with something, mm-hmm. you know. And I feel like this is something that he'll have to come to terms with, either loving it or hating it or something. But eventually, hopefully, he will appreciate that I was, you know, because it's not easy. Like, I've been very lucky. I worked really hard, you know, and... And I'm at a place where I'm lucky to be in and it's not easy to be in and I can't just give it up and I love it and it's my passion. And and so I hope that one day, you know, he will, he does, he's fine with it now. You know, he understands, he doesn't like that I have to go, and, but he doesn't complain. He's always happy to see me. You know, he's happy to visit me. Like sometimes he comes with me to New York and, and he likes being from different parts. And so, yeah, hopefully, you know, all I can do is, Again, being present, being aware, and like giving him all my love and my attention, and and showing him how much, you know, how much this means to me, and how lucky we are that I can do this, because not all women, Mexican, you know, can be doing what I'm doing and having the opportunities and and you know producing culture and jobs, and I think it's it's something that hopefully he will appreciate when he grows up. Definitely. Can you talk about how you make money with your artwork? Yeah. Well, you know, each project, like the first mural that I told you about in Washington, D.C., I think that they gave me like $1,000 and it was like two months of work under the sun, you know, and then like each project you like learn how to like create budgets of your materials and your time. To tell you the truth, even though my projects get bigger and bigger and I hire more people and I have a studio and also, like, the expenses grow, and mm. I've always been someone who over, like, I overdo it. I do more than I'm required to. I I spend more time. Like, my, you know, like, I still don't feel like I'm, like, you know, uh, making money. I'm paying for everything, which is a lot, but I'm always kind of, like, and, and that's part of me, and I've had to learn how to, like, be a little more assertive, um, appreciating my labor, my time, my experience, because I think I've had to deal, even though I'm very independent and I've gotten to the place where I am now, like there's still, there was still like this, you know, Mexican woman who I'm always grateful for the opportunity. And I'm like, oh yes, thank you. Thank you. You know? And then I end up like spending more than, than, than they're paying me because I'm, you know, doing something big and, and so I'm still kind of working with that. I am working with a gallery now in New York for the past four years, which has helped me because they have more of that mindset of like, okay, well, you need to survive. You can't just be exhausted and poor all the time. You know, like if you're working a lot, like you need to make sure that. And so I'm learning slowly, you know, but I do see it with like some of my male peers, like my prices have been like small and like increasing slowly and Again, I'm always like, okay, thank you. And it's never enough versus like some of my male peers who have the same experience and they're like out of the, you know, out of the place. They're like, oh, I'm worth, you know, how much is, how much are you selling your piece for? 
and they immediately give me a number that is like five times what I've been charging, even though I've been wow. selling for galleries forever. You know, it's like, how do we appreciate our labor and our time is different. And for me, it's been like, it, it's taken me a long time to like really fulfill that, that part, even though I'm there with the, all of them, you know, like I'm still undercharging. I'm still doing more than I'm required. You know, like mm-hmm. that's something that I've had to deal with, but I do make money through long projects like I get a commission and that helps me support the studio and my assistants and then and then my gallery sells my small works which have been doing really well like at fairs and collectors and but again like my prices are still much lower than my peers you know like mm-hmm. that's how it, that's how I make money yeah basically that's how I survive <laughs> yeah thank you for sharing that I think it's frustrating to hear from from multiple artists I interview and just friends of mine or people I've talked to that there's still such a divide, I think. And and also just like an audacity that I feel like some particular like male artists have in asking for certain prices, but then a a weird self I don't know what it is, like if it's just everybody has different reasons why they approach it that way and we all have our own circumstances and stuff, but like why is it so hard to be at the same price point it's just like it's so bizarre to me the expectations and like the expectations we put on ourselves and just like what you deserve i guess like what you think you deserve what you feel or like yeah you know and yeah it's been tough and and, you know i've been learning also you can't like i think mexican culture like we're humble in some way i mean by nature you know we're not like i mean maybe some are but i feel like you're always like grateful for the opportunity and you work really hard. And also like, I feel like you can't, like I couldn't just come out of grad school and be like, this is worth, you know, $10,000. Like, I feel like you have to kind of earn that slowly and like make sure the work is, and also it's hard to get a gallery. And so you're always grateful for the new opportunities because you know that you're in a context where these opportunities don't come very often and for me you know that's been my mindset but where whereas yeah as you say like some of my male peers who are also you know latin american but also like i mean the white male like for sure some of them you know are like their attitude is very different you know it's like and i you know i i didn't have that i'm like oh my god i have to like get some of this energy in me you know in some way because i know that i'm doing just as much work and I'm putting so much in it and I know my trajectory and I know, you know, and, uh, but it's something that you have to embody. So slowly I've been trying to learn how to ask for what I deserve and ask based on my experience and now really take it in. Like, come on, like I'm in my forties, I've been working, I've been an artist all my life. I worked really hard, you know, and so I deserve this. You know, I deserve it. And that's the hardest part, you know, I think. But that I think that's culturally embedded because if you look at me, like I left home at 17, I'm independent. I've done these big projects. I've never, like, I, ne- I never feel that about doing a project, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never felt like I'm not, gonna, I'm not good enough or never. Like, I'm like, yeah, the bigger, the better. Sure, I can do it. Like, so that's not in that sense, you know, but it isn't when I'm asking for the budget. And you also have to learn, you know, the first time someone gives you $90,000 to do a project, you're like, oh, I'm a millionaire, this is so much money. (laughs) 
And then you hire all these people and the money's gone in three months because you're taking everybody a certain amount of time. And yeah, yeah, like, like, and so you also learn, you know, like from doing it, how much it really costs and how much time it will take. And, and then you start seeing those numbers in terms of the project as like, oh, that will barely pay for the team and the rent and the materials. Like, how can we add, you know, percentages here and there? Like you understand and, and appreciate my labor because in the end, the one who ends up sometimes not getting paid is me, you know, because I have to pay everybody else and I will always pay everybody else first. Right. So, so that's, it's, it's part of the experience and also, yeah. And also kind of embodying that and, and learning from both, you know, no one will teach you how to deal with a million dollar project mm-hmm. in grad school because it just, it's crazy to think that that will happen, you know? Um, so I feel like you deal with that as it comes and and learn more from it as you move forward. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything you've been reading or listening to or watching that's that's been inspiring you recently? Well, I mean, you know, just for this project that I just told you about, I I started to like learn a lot and read a lot about like how plants having, you know, are really have been forever but also learning about each individual one and i realized that i mean nature is so inspiring to me and so yeah like i am learning more and more and and one thing that happened is that i've always been you know hiking and doing this and mateo my son loves to identify plants and flowers and i'd be like oh yeah 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 but it wasn't until i started really looking at them and their colors and their forms for the project that I started really seeing them and really remembering them and really internalizing them. And that has really, is like really emerging in my work right now. Like the organic, the palettes, understanding the palettes of the flowers and, and the colors of each one, you know? So, so I feel like that's the latest thing that I'm, and right now I'm about to, like, I just finished the big one. So I'm about, to, I just made, started making new forms, but really thinking about the flowers and the plants before, like from the sculpture. And so I think that's that's becoming a new a new change. Is there anything specific that you've read or like discovered in your research? I'm like thinking about the books that I've been reading, but but the books that I've been reading are like I'm reading <laughs> You know, I read like George Orwell and like I'm reading other things that are not necessarily in my work, but that are interesting to me, you know, or uh, I'm reading. Yeah, like not necessarily in my work, because when I'm reading a book is like I'm adding the other, you know, the other like part of culture, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I did. I do have a bunch of uh, ma- like books and magazines that I've been doing research for the Reboso and for the history of the Reboso and for the for the plants and flowers. And I could send you some of them if you want. Yeah, I'd love to link to them if other people are yeah. interested. But yeah, I like novels, you know, like I just read Othello. Like I just like, you know, pick up books that I haven't read. And, and in order for me to like when I'm not doing research, I only can read like on airplanes or on <laughs> are on the subway Mm -hmm. so it's like my time to like calm down and like you know add stories to it and writing you know 
Elements of Style is like my latest book that I just finished. Because, <laughs> yeah, like writing is becoming another thing that is emerging again as an as a you know because English is my second language. I was a writer before I came here. Like I would write poetry and, and stories, and and then I had to learn English from zero. And so I feel like now my English, my writing in English is like getting stronger and like that voice is trying to come out so yeah like elements of style is like you know what i was reading yesterday just like <laughs> kind of like getting you know the little bit so that the writing can be stronger and <laughs> but it's not yeah it's not it's not so much related to my work although we all need to be good writers mm -hmm. to tell our stories and that's one important thing you know when you say like what would you recommend to people like I feel like until now, because my discovery of the technique and, and the work that I'm doing has been very instinctive. Like, I'm not like, I'm gonna make a textile. Like, I go into the work and it becomes this, and then I'm exploring, you know, geometric abstraction shows up. And so I start doing research and then I work with these artists and then I, eh. but I've al always let other people like kind of you know, tell me what I'm doing, you know, in some mm -hmm. way, like I'm doing all this, but then the curator writes this or that. And I feel like it's very important as an artist to take ownership of our narrative. And because then people say you're doing something and then that becomes what you're doing, mm -hmm. but you know that it's not. But I, again, like that confidence in the New York world of like, okay, they're doing, they're saying that, okay, you know, and, and I feel like as I've grown more, sure what I'm doing and what I'm creating and, and, and the stories that I'm telling, I'm trying to really own them by writing about them and by making sure that the writer is not writing something that it's not quite mine. But for a while, I'm just thankful that someone's writing anything about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's important from the get-go, like to own your narrative and to make sure that whatever it's putting is being out there, that, that you approve it, that you feel like it really you know, explains who you are instead of letting someone else say what they think you're doing. Mm -hmm. That's a really good tip and something, yeah, I totally agree. Just figuring out how to do that as soon as you can is is best, even if it's really, really, really hard. Yeah. Is there something else you wish that I had asked you? Something, I well, you asked so many great questions. <laughs> I have so many more, but yeah. Well, actually, I was just going to say one thing. Um, you know, I started, I had a project in Seattle after the big project where I had to create something that I hadn't done before. And I went back to murals. I painted these really large murals are like, they're, they're on canvas and they're rolled up. Um, but they were like 14 feet by 12 feet. And I went to paint them instinctively. And I found that like, you know, I've been working with abstraction and color for so long in these forms, but once I put them in the canvas, they really organize themselves. So all this information, all this color kind of like came together and there were like some figurative things arise when I did these murals. And that was it, you know, I that was a show, blah, blah. I, I went back to my work, but right now I'm working on some older work that I had here in Mexico and I'm seeing how that project of painting on canvas after everything I've done and now going back like the color really like now I see different like I see how much I grew because of that mm. and so I'm actually going back I did uh, one painting that goes along with a big shawl 
And so I would say, so, so it really helped me. Like, I think I am much, a much better painter now than I was, you know, two years ago, just because of the understanding of the language and how to like maneuver it and, and play with it. And one thing that I tell, you know, younger artists or other people is like, never say never. Like when I was a muralist, I was like, I'm always going to be a social realist mural painter because this is what you have to do for the good of the people. And then I became, you know, a sculptor who does abstraction. And and now I'm I'm like interested in going back to canvas because I've become such a painter, <laughs> like through all of these that I'm done. And like the color is like a language and I love it. And it's like there's these systems and I can maneuver them and work with them, you know, and now like working on a canvas is like also delightful because I'm just there with the colors and the, and the lines. And so, you know, I, I think for anyone, like never say never, like don't be so stuck on what you think you are because sometimes the greater discoveries are when, when you try something totally different and you um, it like opens up and, and, and brings more in, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been really, really great. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Yes. My name is Marela Zacarias with a Z. And, and I have my website is marelazacarias.com. My Instagram is Marela Zacarias. My Facebook is Marela Zacarias. Like, I'm easy to find. But it's M-A-R-E-L-A. Um, but yeah, anywhere. I'll link to all of these on in the show notes on the blog and I just want to say your the videos on your website are so great. It's so it's for anyone. I think they should all watch all of your videos because they're so interesting and you learn so much more about your work. And I just really admire everything, everything you're working on. And thank you so much for taking time to chat. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.